This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 34. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Well, now, hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This, of course, is Session 34, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We don't seem to be able to stop because there's just too many recording professionals in general to talk to. And today, of course, is no exception. Mr. Mark Rubel is on, and many of you are applauding that decision to have Mark on. And because those of you who know Mark know how cool, smart, talented, and uh, genuinely nice, probably one of the nicest guys I've ever met, period. Really, really good human being. And Mark is, not only is he an instructor, but he's the co-director of education at the Blackbird Academy in Nashville. Now, of course, that's held at Blackbird Studios, very popular studio uh, around the world. Yeah, so Mark is on, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, his duties over there at Blackbird. But he's also going to talk to us about his past, because Mark has, Mark's been at it probably longer than many of you have been alive, those of you listening. Um just for starters, he spent 34 years working out of his studio, Pogo Studios, in Champaign, Illinois. And he was doing a lot of different tasks there. He was an educator. He was a, an expert legal witness, uh, a consultant. Of course, he was a recording engineer and producer. He's worked with uh, everybody from Allison Krauss to Ludacris to Fallout Boy. How about that? Kind of crazy. Really excited to have him on. So Mark is coming up. But... Uh, one thing I wanted to talk about, because it's becoming more and more apparent to me, there are many students out there listening to the show, I'm discovering. I was having uh, was having coffee with a guy who's been um, assisting with me and that I've been becoming friends with, a guy named Cole. And Cole hello, Cole. I know you're listening. So um, Cole and I were – Cole was over at my house the other day, and I was kind of going over some stuff that I was working on, and we were just discussing um, – work in general and networking. And this came up, I was I was just giving out advice to him. And let's see, he ran into me at a gig. I was playing drums at a gig and we started to talk about recording and went for coffee to talk more about recording and more about just, you know, what he's doing, where he's working at. And he's doing some work over at Faultline Studios in San Francisco. And so after having coffee, I realized, okay, this guy's pretty cool, and he kind of knows what he's doing, you know, for being kind of new at it and not having a lot of years under his belt. So the next time he emailed me, he said, hey, Matt, you know, uh, if there's any sessions coming up, if it's possible, I'd love to, you know, be a fly on the wall or assist you or whatever. And it just so happened I did have a session coming up, a three-day run. And Long story short, he joined me for that session, and it worked out great. He was fantastic, and I thought I could have this guy back easily because he fits in, uh, doesn't talk too much, does what he should be doing, and even starts to uh, – he even mentioned to me, oh, you know, maybe I, next time I could be doing this and, you know, taking notes and doing this and that and the other thing. And I thought, yeah, 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 you could do that. That's fine. But – the work that he did do when he was there was great, and I thought, I'll have him back easily. It brought up the question of, you know, he was saying, well, you know, I've, I've sent out some emails to some other people saying, you know, I'm available for this and that. And I told him, I said, you know, that's kind of, for me, I don't just, like, I get emails from people all the time. Hey, can I come intern for you? Can I come and, you know, sit in on sessions? And, you know, random emails from random strangers uh, you know, unless there's something miraculous about your email writing skills, students, I I don't know about uh, the other working professionals out there, but that just doesn't do it for me because there's a lot of crazy people out there. And the last thing I want to do is take on somebody who emails me randomly and decides that, you know, hey, I want to be a recording engineer. I'm just going to email as, I you know, we talked about with uh, – with Joe Barisi, hey, you know, I like brain surgery. Can I just come and watch you operate on brains? No, it doesn't work like that. It, or in my opinion, it shouldn't work like that. Now, I'm not saying that 
the right email at the right time, you know, can be effective. But I'll tell you what's more effective. In terms of networking and finding recording professionals to mentor you or to uh, work with or assist or whatever, to me, the path to, I don't want to say the path to enlightenment, but the path to getting more uh, connections that can help you maybe land that assisting gig, to me, the path to that is paved with coffee. And no joke. I'm serious. Now, really, because if you slowly make your way through the world and have coffee with as many people as you can, think about it. What do you do when you have coffee? You chat. You get to know somebody. You figure out if that person is stone cold crazy or a psychopath of some type or a sociopath. Um, if they're super cool, you get to know somebody within about 15 or 20 minutes. You know, number one, do they show up on time? Number two, what do they talk about? Uh, are they passionate about, you know, recording? Does that come out in the conversation? Uh, you know, once again, when Joe Barisi meets with potential uh, assistants or people who are going to join him in the studio for work, he has coffee with him. That was a clear example. So uh, just to kind of the, the conclusion of this is go have coffee with people. And it doesn't mean go ask uh, Bob Clearmountain to have coffee with you. I'm, I'm saying like start, start low, start with your peers, start with other assistants who are coming up and that human interaction by getting out from your phone, your, your iPad, your computer, and I'm guilty of it, believe me, sit, sitting at Facebook all day is not going to uh, completely educate you. So the takeaway from this is go out, find somebody, go have coffee with them, exchange information, talk about what your interests are, what are they up to, who do they know, and revisit that person in another month or two. Hey, you want to go have coffee again? What's new? What's changed? How are things? Go have coffee with not only recording people, but go have coffee with artists you're interested in and maybe talk about what their recording plans are. Coffee is the great equalizer. It just, it allows you to meet in a public place and it allows you to discuss various topics. So I, I can't endorse that concept enough. Coffee. It's, I mean, really. And if you're not into coffee, whatever. Have tea, have water, have something. The concept is, is to get together, meet, and work your way across the networking plane, so to speak. Now, why would you do that? I mean, what, what do you get out of that? Well, number one, it gets people to know you. And if you send, and let's say you have coffee, let, you know, in the case of Cole, we had coffee one time and I could tell the guy was cool and, and, I thought, this is somebody I could have on my team. So when he came asking about coming on a session, I was ready to give him a chance. And he took that opportunity, and he did really well. So cheers to you, Cole. And uh, to those of you out there who are just sitting in front of Facebook, sending out random emails about wanting to intern or whatever, get off your ass and start networking. Start finding people to talk to. And then eventually... Maybe you'll be having coffee with Bob Clear Mountain. Shit, I don't know, but it's at least worth getting out. And you know what? What could hurt? You meet somebody, and worst case scenario, you meet a total psychopath. You just, next time they call you for coffee, you just, ah, oh, sorry, I'm busy. You know, and you start to identify who the cool people are and who the crazy people are. Otherwise, you'd never know. What if, what if I'm a total crazy person who likes to yell at people? all the time. And, uh, and I say, Oh yeah, I answer your email. Yeah. You can come and assist me and you show up and I immediately tear your head off with, Oh my God, you're two minutes late. What the hell are you doing? You know, you're going to be in for a treacherous day, right? But if you went to coffee with me, you probably would get a pretty good sense of whether or not I was going to, you know, be a crazy person. So coffee, it's how we find the crazy people. All right, so on that note, let's jump into our conversation with Mr. Mark Rubel here on Working Class Audio. And uh, thanks for listening, crazy people and cool people, right here on Working Class Audio. 
How's it going? Pretty good. How are you, man? Fantastic. Good to see you. Good to see you. Can you you can hear me okay? I hear you very well. Oh, excellent. And you? I can hear you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, oh yeah, your picture is getting a little pixelated, but that's okay. As long as I can, as long as the audio is good, that's all that matters. That's how I look in reality. <laughs> I'm pixelated in reality. Indeed. So we're talking to you. Are you at Blackbird right now? I am in the Blackbird Academy at the moment. Okay. So let's work a little bit backwards because this is probably not new really anymore, but it, it seems like it's a relatively new thing, relatively speaking, for you. I've actually been here two years this week. <laughs> it was probably, oh, three quarters of a year before that, planning the school and building it bits and putting it together. So it's been an incredible thrill to get to move to Nashville and at this uh, later stage in life to you know, move from the place where I've lived since 1960. Wow. Uh, to uh, a wonderful town and get to put together this school that uh, is kind of the ideal school that we always wish we could have attended ourselves. What makes Blackbird, and I don't want this to turn into a sales pitch for Blackbird, but I mean, really, why do you think Blackbird is different from all the other recording school possibilities in the country? Well, a number of things. You know, first of all, we're at Blackbird Studio and in Nashville. So uh, the students spend half the time with me in the classroom learning theory and various ideas. And uh, I also bring in a lot of guests and we go and tour all sorts of places and visit all sorts of people. So it's, uh, I would say to sum it up, it's very real world. So they spend half the time with me and they spend half the time in Blackbird Studio making records every day. You know, so they'll be with me for a week or two, and then they go in the studio and they apply it. And uh, so by the time they come out, they've spent three months in the studio, and they're, we've set up dozens of drum kits and torn them down, and dozens of headphone systems and torn them down. They've learned various mixing consoles. So we try to make it very real, and we try to teach them more than just technique or equipment, uh, even though you might think, gee, they're at Blackbird, so they have all the equipment in the world, which is true. But what better place to teach uh, the relative lack of importance to the gear and to teach them the other things that really are important, like how to behave, how to uh, foster a career, how to handle their own money, and uh, how to listen, try to teach them as much about the history and to place themselves in the context that we are in, in the audio world, the, the historical context, the business context, the cultural context, and so forth. Hmm. So you mentioned how to handle their money. Um, can you elaborate on that? Sure. Well, we, uh, we spend time talking about careers, you know, what careers there are and how they fit into the larger picture. Um, and then specifically, you know, we advise them on things like uh, saving money to pay taxes, for example. And, uh, you know, that if it's possible to save some money back to invest, that it's a great idea. And there's a guy named Dave Ramsey who's a, yes. who's a podcast. I'm I'm a total Dave Ramsey fan. Yeah, and uh, I I give them some information from him and try to point them towards him. But you know, I, one of the pieces of information that I got from him that I wish somebody had told me when I was uh, in my teens or twenties is the the power of compound interest in saving money. It's mentioned early on in my, uh, in fact, maybe in a blog post on Working Class Audio, and I kind of dropped off talking about it, but. Dave Ramsey's uh, economic education is, I think, really great. And I unfortunately kind of came upon it later in life after making many, many mistakes. So, wow, what a, what a brilliant thing to uh, incorporate into an audio education. Well, in general, you know, we're trying to give them the benefit of all the things that we've done and, and the mistakes that we've made and try to steer them away from at least the biggest landmines. And, uh, and, you know, we really care about our students. We want them to have happy and um, productive and successful lives. We want them to be able to do what they love to do, as we've been lucky enough to get to do ourselves. And so it's a responsibility when you're so fortunate to try to um, spread it to other people. And in terms of um, the other elements, the audio elements that you're teaching, how do you feel that Blackbird differs from the other schools? Well, it's very applied and it's very realistic. And um, so partly, you know, I've made a thousand records, so it helps to be taught by somebody who's done that and not by somebody whose qualification is that they took the class that they're teaching you. Um, so we're able to be pretty flexible and, and give them, uh, you know, information that really comes from experience. So that's important. And, and uh, 
also because we have so many people who have made records here, and of course everybody has their own perspective and their own way of doing things. So Kevin Becca, my counterpart here, has his own method of recording, and Jeremy Cottrell, who's another audio instructor, and I all have different approaches, but they also get to learn from what we call guest mentors. So when they're in the studio, we'll bring in an engineer, and uh, and bam, and then they'll get to work with them tracking for a couple of days, and that engineer or producer will show them, you know, their approach to mixing or their approach to making a drum kit and so forth. So by the time they get out, they've had I don't know 50 or 60 people give them advice or mix a song in front of them or, you know, show them how to do things. It's you know the traditional way to learn audio is has been always through mentorship and apprenticeship, mm-hmm. and that's great, but it was always very limited. Right, there just were few, so few studios for people who really were great at what they do. We could mentor people, and also you're lucky to have one mentor, and you would sort of learn by osmosis, right? So that you're lucky enough to talk your way into a studio in the olden days. Uh, then you're running around uh, setting things up and turning them down and making lunch runs and so forth, and you're sitting in the back, and you can sort of learn from them through osmosis. But there's just not really time. The focus isn't on teaching the student; the focus is on the work at hand. So we're able to do to extend the mentorship model and the apprenticeship model, but in a way where the focus is on the students. They're doing the recording, but they can stop, and the bands are prepared for this, and say, you know, here's what I'm doing, here's why I'm doing it. And uh, we've had everybody from Ken Scott, Ross Hogarth, Steve Marcantonio has been a great mentor to our students, um, and uh, many other people, John McBride himself, and uh, so on. So it's, it's great that they get a variety of uh, information from a variety of sources. Wow, that's... It sounds fantastic, and uh, it sounds like it's a it's well rounded of an education uh, in the audio world. Um, now, let, kind of putting the focus back on yourself, you moved from a successful studio to do this. So, can you talk a little bit about the decision to do that? Why did you choose to do that? Why did you leave your studio? It obviously it was a tempting thing to do. Well, I'll tell you the story. I was living in Champaign, Illinois, where I had lived most of my life, sort of off and on, and uh, had a university job that I really enjoyed getting to teach the history of rock and roll and teach uh, audio and recording. And I was the audio director at a university where I got to record symphony orchestras and big bands and so forth. And my studio was really still thriving, and we owned the building and everything in it, so it wasn't a terrible financial strain. And I was in my band and I had all my friends and so forth. But I would often bring my students to Nashville and other places just for them to experience the, you know, what's there at all the studios and people. And really felt an affinity for John McBride. He is completely dedicated, completely passionate about recording and audio, as anyone can tell from being around him for a minute. So, you know, I've always had a real affinity for him and believed in what he does. And we had the following conversation. Uh, typically when Martin McBride would travel near Champaign, Illinois. I would bring the students and then he would talk to them, you know, and, and then we'd sit in sound check or he'd give us tickets and we'd sit at the board and so forth. So one time he was playing nearby and we had the following conversation. He said, hi, John, how are you? I'm great. He said, I'm thinking of starting an audio school. John, I said, yes, I'm going to be your teacher. That was the conversation. <laughs> and we almost did it, uh, almost put the school together in, I think, 2009. And then he decided not to at the time. And then when we got serious about it again, in, I think it was 2013, I, uh, I quit my job, sold my building. I quit, you know, we moved away from our family and friends. I didn't quit my band, which I still commute to Illinois to play shows because I want to. Um, and I moved down here with no contract and no guarantee. Wow. Because I believe in the mission, the dream of it. You know, uh, it was a very easy decision to make. You know, to go to what really is one of the best recording studios in the world and to have the opportunity, almost without limits, to create a program that would be exclusive. You know, we turn a lot of people away. We, we pick people who are serious, you know, um, and, uh, and to try and, and give them the very best that we know and introduce them to the very best people that we know and give them the experiences. You know, I take them to Muscle Shoals. I think in Memphis we go to Sun Studio. We go to uh, Royal Studio and so forth. Um, it was such a great opportunity that it was actually an easy decision to make. Mm. And luckily, my wife agreed. Interesting. Wow. Well, that's fantastic. And, and what a leap of faith on your part. And I'm glad that uh, it's been rewarding. 
of an experience for not only everybody that goes to the school, but for you, because my my experiences with you just, you know, once a year hanging out with you at Potluck Con and Tape Up in the past, I always walked away just like, wow, I really wish I could spend more time with Mark because he's such a, a, a deep individual who's passionate about what he does. And uh, I'm jealous that others get to uh, spend time in a classroom with you to learn from you. Um, Which brings me to my next question, which is, does Blackbird take on only beginners or do they take people who have experience under their belt? It's a variety of people. We have people who've worked in studios and, um, you know, or have studios and, and are quite experienced. We have a lot of people who've done a lot of home recording. And we have people who have never touched a microphone. Uh, and, you know, in some cases, it's easier to educate a, a talented person with a good attitude who hasn't learned bad habits than somebody who's experienced but really uh, needs uh, some reorientation, we might say. So um, it's, it's highly variable. Um, and, you know, we do, I do take it from the ground up. You know, I mean, I literally start with what is recording and talk about, you know, what it is culturally and what it is technically and what it is as an art and what it is as a business. And, uh, you know, we start with what is a microphone and what is an electron and, you know, how does the signal flow? We don't assume that they know anything and we don't have prerequisites for them. We test them to find out what they know, but it doesn't matter because we're equipped to take them from zero to pretty far in six months. I tell them it's like being shot out of a cannon. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it is very intensive and there's a lot of information. But it turns out that, you know, people who are dedicated and smart and hardworking, they can really progress really quickly mm-hmm. in, a, in a short period of time. And uh, partly we don't tell them that they're not supposed to. So they just think, oh, this is how it is. And we just fire a lot of information at them and, and they get it. You know, when we were putting the school together, John said, you know, I'm worried that six months isn't long enough. Uh, and I said, John, 60 years isn't long enough. It's a good yeah. point. You know, it's, it's a, I'm, I'm the product of liberal arts education. Um, I think that part of it is that, um, teaching people how to learn teach people how to listen, how to think critically, and to give them as much good information, as many good experiences, and as much of a network as we can, and get them started. You know, um, and I tell them the real test isn't some quiz I'm going to give you on a Friday or a final at the end of it. Uh, the real test is where are they in five years from graduation? Interesting. Well, now, going back to Champagne, um, you ran your studio for how long? 34 years. Wow. Yeah, from 1980 to 2014. And Champagne, you know, is not a Nashville, an L.A., a New York. Tell us about Champagne and what makes it special. It is a very special place. It's a remarkable place. It's where the University of Illinois is. And uh, it has a very longstanding tradition of musical excellence. And it's, it's unbelievable, that town. There are, you know, I, I've, in Nashville, you hear some of the greatest musicians in the world. And uh, really, there are players that are as good as any of them in Champagne. It's, it's an amazing place. Uh, there are great jazz bands, there are great rock bands, there are great blues players, there are great Irish music players. Um, I was very lucky to get to be a part of that scene uh, and, uh, you know, to be part of that community. And it, it is that. It's a true music community and not of scene, you know, scene is a bunch of people hanging out, but it's a true community. You go to a show and half the audience is composed of other musicians who are there to appreciate the people that are playing. And it's the kind of place that has had um, a complete enough musical culture that it's self-sustaining. You know, that we have great music schools, great musicians, great venues, great radio stations that play local music, so great music stores. It's been, uh, you know, I was very lucky to get to be there. Part of it is just from having a university, we get all sorts of interesting people through. Part of his geography that we have Chicago, St. Louis, and Indianapolis, and various college towns nearby. So there are places for people to play. But, uh, it, you know, Alison Krauss is from there. I was probably the first person to record her. There's a guy named Ian Hobson, who's just one of the greatest classical pianists in the world. Um, Ariel Speedwagon, a band that I got to produce called Hum, that was from there. And they're playing in Asheville. Friday nights, I'm going to go and see them. Uh, an amazing slew of, of great rock and roll bands and folk musicians, Dan Fogelberg, Steve Goodman. Wow. Bridgewater, Cecil Bridgewater, um, and uh, Dee Dee Bridgewater, the singer. 
it's just unbelievable. And there are musicians there that are as good as any of those people that just didn't happen to become world famous. But they can survive there, and uh, you can go out at any night and hear musicians. It's really the equivalent of, of anything you'd hear anywhere. So it's a phenomenal place. I, I, I really love being in Nashville. Uh, well, I was I was just going to say, as far as Champagne is concerned, uh, how are the winters in Champagne? Oh, they can be difficult, I suppose. But you know that makes makes people stay home and practice or make records. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Midwest. Well, you know, recording studio. You know, why would you want to go outside? Right. It's, right. It's, it's immaterial. Really. I hope you're enjoying this conversation here with Mr. Mark Rubel. Doing a little experimenting here, as you know, we are bringing on more sponsors and really trying to do our best at only bringing on companies on board whose products we really like and whose products we believe in. One company, though, that I do believe in, and I think I've made that clear, is Sonarworks. And I'm really enjoying their software. Um, My mixes are turning out much better. And when I do work on headphones and I use the headphone component of their software, it's usually it's late at night when I can't sleep, my kids and wife are asleep, and I need to do some work and I can't crank it up. I can uh, dial up the setting for my particular headphones and I can work at night and I can build up mixes. I can start to flush ideas out and experiment a little bit. And in the morning, I can then, once everybody's out of the house and I can get back to work and turn the speakers back on, I can flip back over to my Klein and Hummels and I can listen on those through the lens of the Sonarworks software, which essentially is taking the anomalies out of my room so that I can really hear what's going on. So it's a, it's a cool thing. And once again, if you use the WCA Works promo code, there's a limited number available. So if you're going to buy the software... Go to their website, you know, download the demo, see what you think. And if you're going to buy a package from them, make sure you mention that code because you can get a discount. Just, you know, it's a personal endorsement. Pretty soon we're going to have a web page up on the Working Class Audio site about uh, products we believe in, products we endorse, and Sonarworks is one of them. So make sure you check that out. So sorry for the interruption. Let's get back to talk to Mark here on Working Class Audio. You must have learned a thing or two in 34 years of studio ownership that you could write a book about. If I asked you to name the top five things that you learned, they could be things you learned early on, midway, at the end. What was your takeaway from 34 years of studio ownership and those, those a number of things that you learned, whether they be five or more? Well, in no particular order. One thing I've learned is there's really no way to advertise a recording studio. Brochures and ads and commercials and that sort of thing don't particularly bring people in. Uh, Yellow Pages ad brings in odd clients with tapes to be duplicated. So, but it, you know, when a band is going to make a record, they don't generally turn to the Yellow Pages and look up recording studio. So, what does work to promote a recording studio is to do the best work possible, um, to build a network as much as possible, to try and, and never have an unhappy client. But to the extent that it can be helped, because you know, if uh, because the word spreads one way or another, um, and I would say that one good way to promote a recording studio is through publicity, because then rather than us telling somebody how great our studio is, j- just to get exposure um, in other ways. So, for example, I would sponsor the Battle of the Bands every year, you know, the high school Battle of the Bands. That way, people or musicians are going to hear about the studio and think, "Gee, I'd like to go there." Uh, one trick to that is not to become a judge because then you get one band that loves you and a bunch of bands that hate you. So that's not a great idea. Um, <laughs> but that sort of thing, or to be friendly with the people in the local news outlets. So if they're going, doing an article about the Grammys or they're doing an article about some development that has to do with music, they come in and shoot a, a sequence in your studio. Um, you know, you couldn't buy that much, or it would be expensive to buy that much TV time. And it's those sorts of things that I, that I find are, are useful for promoting a, a studio. So I don't know if that's one thing or 10 things. Those are some valuable things, to, especially the studio owners out there listening to the podcast. Um, also, you know, Champagne is a twin city, Champagne and Urbana. It's Champagne Urbana. And uh, there was another really nice studio in, in Urbana, Illinois, called Private Studios. And it is owned by my friend Jonathan Pines, who works for Rupert Neve Design and, uh, and SE. 
And, you know, we've been friends since I was one and he was zero. But if, even if we hadn't been, you know, we could have taken the competitive route and, uh, you know, try to, to knock each other down and try to steal each other's clients. And we managed to be in business in the same town for 34 years and remain best of friends and share equipment and refer clients and share information about um, clients, whether good or bad. And that was not only good for each of us, but it was good for the whole scene and kind of an earmark of a scene like that. Like I said, it's a community where uh, it's not one studio against another. It's not one musician against another. It's really our community trying to do as well as we can in the world. And the more that we can, you know, be part of other communities like the film community and dance and, and so forth, the academic community, uh, the better it is for everyone. So I think truly that kind of cooperativeness is, is, uh, is not only good karma, but it's, uh, it's actually a good business. Yeah, because I think that insecurities um, can build up in, in people in, when running a business. It can be a high-pressure environment, a lot of expenses, a lot of uh, worries. And I think there's a strong temptation to take an adversarial position against other studio owners. So that, that's very um, that's refreshing to hear. It's, it's been a, a lifelong joy. Um, let me think of some other things. One is, you know, um, I bought all the equipment that we have at Pogo in cash uh, from studio income mostly. So I didn't take out loans until I was 50-some years old and bought a car. <laughs> you know, we actually built a studio over, over all this time um, in cash, which helps to weather the, any economic ups and downs which have been surprisingly few for me. I really was busy as could be for much of that time, most of that time. Uh, but I think it makes for a more relaxed existence and a more resilient business. Uh, I've seen an awful lot of people go into the studio business with great flourish and great debt, and then, you know, have the whole thing collapse, whether it's a, a month or a year or a couple of years. So um, that's, that's something that I think was something smarter that we did in the building of the studio. Throughout those years, you always bought the gear in cash. You never went into debt. Did you learn that from a mentor or did you just naturally gravitate towards that concept? I think rather the latter. It was um, just the way that we did things. You know, the studio actually started out as a collective, kind of a like post-hippie collective, a bunch of guys working together on and just putting together the equipment that we had. Um, and our resources, which weren't very much. Um, we had a founder named Peter Penner who had put a studio together in, uh, at his girlfriend's farm in southern Illinois with equipment that we had bought from Bill Putnam Sr. Oh, my gosh. Well, Bill Putnam was from Danville, Illinois, which is about 45 minutes from Champaign, and is an amazing town, also from uh, Danville, Illinois. Dick Van Dyke, um, Gene Hackman, Bobby Short, jazz piano player, Donald O'Connor from Singing in the Rain, Gus Bell, the founder of Steak and Shake, Donald Leslie, the inventor of the Leslie Speaker, Irving Azoff, the king of the music business, wow. uh, an astronaut, and other people. So for a small town, a pretty amazing place. So I think that probably Milt Putnam saw some of himself in us, young guys putting the studio together from scratch, and he sold us a bunch of uh, gear from United Western and from Universal Studios in Chicago. Uh, for a very minimal amount of money, and that helped us put it together. So I think partly, you know, at the beginning, we just didn't have the resources, probably couldn't have gotten along, and, uh, but it turned out to be an intelligent way to do it, and we just kept building that way. It's a sl slower way to build a business and a studio, but it's also nice because we started with very minimal equipment, and that's a useful and important way to learn audio is to start with, in a different way than many people learn now, to start with a minimal amount of stuff and try to stretch the the boundaries up and try to get everything that you can out of a four track tape machine. And then when we went to an eight track tape machine, it's like, wow, we have eight tracks. What are we going to do with all these tracks? And then, you know, we'll sort of learn to do that in a way. I mean, we didn't start out mono, but in a way, the history of the studio retraced the history of recording. How do you approach that? The, the question and answers regarding studio ownership with, with a new student? Well, you know, I, I'm not going to tell them what their dreams are and, or, or try to mold them into a miniature version myself. So, I'll accept whatever they say they want to do and try to help them do that as much as possible. 
while trying to steer them around as many of the pitfalls as, as possible. Hmm. Um, and, you know, many of my student, students, I've had thousands of students at this point, because this is my 30th year of teaching audio. Many of them have studios or work for audio companies or, you know, are artists and so forth. So, um, so I basically try to encourage them. Uh, one advice, piece of advice that I give them regarding equipment is, and I think this is relatively sage, is uh, to buy is not to buy equipment, but to buy capabilities. Hmm. In other words, they say, oh, you know, I, I read that so-and-so uses an XZ9000. Should I buy an XZ9000? The implication being that's sort of fostered far and wide. Is it, well, you can't be a great recording engineer. You can't make good recordings unless you have the following pieces of equipment. It's like, you don't need the piece of equipment. What you need to do is figure out what is it that I'm not able to do with what I have? What capability do I need? And then what's the best solution that would give me that capability? For example... You know, what's my biggest problem? I can't hear the low end. So that means, well, you need to work on, this, on the speakers and, uh, and the acoustic treatment. Or, you know, I can't control vocals. So then that's when you need a compressor. You don't just have to reflexively buy a compressor because you've read it's been done. So it's one of the things we have to do is sort of uh, unbrain them, wash them a little bit from thinking, oh, so-and-so puts four plugins on the vocal, therefore I have to put these four plugins on the vocal. We all start out by emulating things, but just to do things reflexively or because you read or heard that's the way to do it isn't necessarily the way. So that's some of the things that I, I, I do with them. Also, um, I find that I have to break them from the habit of too much visual mixing. They've grown up with laptops and seeing things, and I, um, I can tell that, especially mixing with a the mouse, they're very fixated on what they're doing and what the settings are and what the automation looks like, and they're not using their ears. And I have to get them to, you know, I have to sometimes turn off the screen or get them to um, close their eyes and because they miss the big picture. They get too lost in the details. You know, since Michael's going to love me for this, Michael Beinhorn, I, I read his book and, and, I, and the listeners know him, I loved his book and Michael knows I loved his book. But after reading it, I, I find myself spending a lot more time shutting my eyes, listening, whether it's tracking or mixing or whatever, and only opening my eyes when I sense something is a problem. And that feel-based listen, deep listening to some is a no-brainer. It's like, well, duh, of course you should be doing that. But, you know, even a guy like me or you, I think we can, we, who came from... A, a different generation prior to the DAW, prior to the internet. And it's very easy to get sucked into it. And when you do, you, you know, excuse the pun, but one can lose sight of what you're doing by spending too much time visually taking in the information off of a screen rather than shutting your eyes, shutting that sense down and taking in what's actually happening. Happened today. I was overdubbing acoustic guitar with a with a client, and I just shut my eyes and was able to quickly narrow in on the rhythmical problem areas he was having with the drummer, and was like, "All right, I know what we where we need to go now. I just need to find it really quick. Oh, there it is. Let's go here." So it's more of a comment than a question, but taking one's eyes off the screen, I think, is very valuable. Yeah, I agree, and I think you've also touched on something else that's important about doing anything very well, which is at some point you're not thinking about it so much as you're operating instinctively, right? It's, it's what athletes would say, getting into a state of flow, where I find that when I'm mixing, I'm, you have to be able to sort of zoom in and out to, you know, micro problems and then look out, zoom out for the macro, looking at the overall picture. Mm -hmm. But I find that with mixing, I'm not sitting there thinking in terms of decibels or anything in particular. I'm sort of listening to myself. And listening for something, it's like something is bothering me. What is it? And then I zoom in. It's something in the low end. Okay, what is that? And then it's, you know, well, the floor tom is fighting the bass guitar or something like that. So um, that kind of instinctive thing, I think, is the same thing if you're a great tennis player. At some point, you just, you're, you're doing it and you're not thinking, how do I hold the racket? Where do I put my arm? So. Yeah, and I think that that obviously comes with thousands and thousands of hours of doing it and making mistakes and, and being able to, you know, just, I hate to say it, it's a cliche now, but 
it's the Malcolm Gladwell thing. It's the 10,000 hour thing. The, the more time you spend, the more it becomes ingrained in you in second nature. So, so 34 years at a studio, uh, quite a community and, and quite a network you built up. What's it like starting over in Nashville? It's lovely. It's amazing. You know, it, uh, Nashville feels like a tight knit community and, and the, the, it has is another place with a true music community. People not only act supportive, but I think they really are supportive. And of course, it's not as though I moved down you know, in late middle age and decided I'm going to break into the business. I sort of parachuted into the center of it at Blackbird. You know, we get people coming through from all over the world and so many great engineers and producers. So it's been a fantastic experience. I've made a lot of friends. I've gotten to meet amazing people and I learn every day here. You know, the, the assistants here, the engineers here, the staff people, it's really a well-oiled machine. They're all really knowledgeable and smart. And they're, you know, we're in Berry Hill where it has to have the highest ratio of recording studios per capita of anywhere on the planet. I mean, there's 50 or 60 studios within a mile of here, real studios. So for us, like field trips, a lot of times we walk out the door and we go three doors in any direction. And then we go in and there's a, a another studio with a different console and somebody who's been doing it for a long time who encapsulates their entire career and all that they've learned in a few hours and this is a song for us or whatever. It's been just an amazing experience. I say this with, with no disrespect, but of course it helps that you've landed at Blackbird with John McBride and that in itself can open a lot of doors instantaneously because of the credibility of Blackbird. Um, what have you learned from John? Because, I, you know, I've been around him, and he he is very passionate. And um, obviously, he and he and Vance Powell go back. Vance was you know instrumental in helping build Blackbird. What have you learned from John, from such a passionate guy? And I mean, you yourself being a passionate person, what have you learned from him? Well, part of it is uh, maybe to confirm the the value of total passion and total commitment, which he really has. You know, if he believes in something, he just does it a hundred percent. Something else that's been amazing is to see how he delegates. He trusts us to, to put the best school possible to be together that we can. He's very helpful. He works with the students, but he doesn't tell me what to teach. And he, you know, he, he picks people that he trusts and he lets them do what they do. I think there's a, a great lesson in that. I, mean, I would say that he is a true leader. And that is uh, a rare quality. And that's one that I think everybody can learn from. You know, he comes into the classroom and talks to the students, and it's sort of like a motivational speaker. You know, they they really are, are, are pumped up and more focused and more directed. Um, because, you know, the guy is a force of nature. It's amazing to be around him. And, of course, uh, to see that he's built his own world. You know, we're in this uh, sort of, uh, I call it the chocolate factory. You know, <laughs> this, uh, it's, uh, it's amazing to see that. And, you know, he didn't have to. He could have done whatever he wanted, um, and to choose to create an environment where music can be made as well as it can be done without compromise, mm -hmm. and also in a place that feels stimulating and musical. You know, there are some big fancy studios which look really nice in the cover of a magazine, but they're uncomfortable, sterile places that no one would ever feel comfortable making music in. But, you know, uh, one of the things that's fascinating about studios, whether they're large or small, is that they're a reflection of the personality of the people that put them together. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a kind of amplification, and every studio is a little culture. And so that's part of the fun of being in Nashville, getting to go to all these different studios. Each one of them has its own vibe. It's its own little ecosystem. So I tell the students I'm sort of like their tour guide. I put on a pith helmet, and our, our classroom is a Land Rover, you know. And then, like, we're now going to go to Vance Powell World and we'll see the care and feeding of how everything happens in here. You know, now we're going to go to Ben Fold's studio and we'll see what happens there. And, you know, in many cases, just getting to go into some of these places, I think, expands their view of how it can be, you know. And to be around Blackbird, I mean, that's kind of the bar. That's about as good as it gets. And so for them, you know, we were very cognizant that when they got out of a six-month program, they're not going to be sitting in front of a zillion-dollar console or be in a place that has 50 40 seconds or whatever we have here, um, which is why we do more minimal things. We'll make records with just S57s. I went out and bought a four-track cassette machine the other one and start making them make records on it. But it's useful to know where the bar is, and it's useful for, to be around something like John McBride where you can see what total commitment to excellence really means. 
Well, what about your own recording career? Where is that now? Uh, well, temporarily on hold. You know, it's been wonderful to have one job, which is teaching. Uh, when I was in Champaign, I was running the studio, teaching at the studio, teaching at a university, playing in the band, and being a legal expert witness. So it's been wonderful having one job for a couple of years, but I really miss getting into the studio and, and recording. So it's going to be winding up again here towards the end of the year. Uh, we bought Steve Earle's old place, Green Board Studios. You, you bought, you and your wife did? Yes, we did. Bought Steve Earle's old studio. We did. Wow. Uh, it's a really nice place, and it was designed by the guy who designed Blackbird and designed and built Blackbird, Michael Cronin. The studio actually was um, built for Moon Martin, the songwriter who wrote Bad Case of Love and You for Robert Palmer. Wow. And it's, so it's a ground-up studio in non-parallel walls and, you know, single blocks and all that. And it's a good-sized control room. It's, I don't remember the exact size, like 19 by 25. And a good-sized studio room is something like, I don't know, 25 by 35, something like that. Three booths and high ceilings, non-parallel and all that. There's a, a great producer-engineer in town here called Ray Kennedy. And Ray and Steve Earle had a production team they called the Twang Trust. So they did John Mellencamp record out there. They did Lucinda Williams records out there. They worked with Ray Davis of the Kinks. They did Steve Earle records out there and so forth. So it's a real studio, and I put all my stuff in it. And, uh, you know, here in probably a month or two, I'm going to start wiring it together, and then I'll have a studio again, which is going to be lovely. Pogo Studios in Champaign was, was a building you owned. Did you also own a home in Champaign? We lived over the shop. It was, it was a uh, good size, you know, your typical downtown brick American warehouse. Okay, okay. So we lived on the second floor. The studio was a whole first floor. And the thing that I'm missing here is that it had a, a basement that was a half a block long, so I could store all my extraneous stuff, of which there is much in it. Um, this place doesn't have a basement because the bedrock is, you know, three feet down or whatever. <laughs> so I'm going to have to figure out how to uh, incorporate all the stuff that I have into this space. But it's actually a little bit larger than... Was. Um, so you say the bedrock is three feet down. So are basements not a feature of Nashville homes traditionally? Not generally, yeah. Um, there's a fantastic studio that's uh, three blocks from Blackbird called Addiction Studios. It's owned by Jonathan Kane of Journey. Oh, yeah. And a great engineer producer named Dave Kalmuski. They decided they were going to put a reproduction of the Abbey Road chamber uh, behind the studio, and it took some weeks of going at it with a steam hammer to get the limestone, enough limestone out that they could uh, make this chamber under the parking lot. So yeah, not a lot of basements in Nashville. Interesting. And cost of living, uh, Champagne versus Nashville. And you know, um, the drivers are somewhat loony in this town, but you can, it's a place you can get pretty much anywhere in a half an hour. Um, there's a wonderful culture, great restaurants. You know, if so many people are moving here, Ryan Hewitt just moved down the street from us. Ryan was on the show. He's great. And uh, what a great guy. And he came, you know, we were able to go over there and visit with him. And he'll bring up a song and show the students how he mixes it. He brought his dad in, David, and we had a little slideshow about the whole, his whole career. Live recording. So, you know, it is um, kind of the nucleus of the music world these days. You know, people, a lot of people are moving here and people who don't tend to come through. So we get to see celebrities around, which is fun. And we get to meet a lot of incredible recording engineers and producers. Nick Raskulinitz is in town. He comes in and talks to the students. It's just phenomenal. You know, everywhere you go, there are musicians and there are studios. And it's all thriving. You know, it's the last bastion of the great American songwriters. It's the last bastion of studios that are capable of recording full bands, you know, uh, all at once, and which is really the way that it's done. And there, um, you know, the, we get to sit on some of the Nashville studio sessions, which are just astounding. You, know, you get a six or seven piece band and they'll record four master quality songs in a three hour session. And it's phenomenal. You know, I mean, it just, uh, it blows my mind. You know, we're there and we, uh, we did one of these where John McBride was engineering and students were observing and assisting. And, you know, it's all a sort of strict three hour union stuff. And, it's 11 minutes before nine and the session ends at nine and they go, Hey, want to do another song? Sure. So a guy brings out his iPhone, plays a little scratchy demo. So he playing his guitar 
hand out some pieces of paper with Nashville charts on it. They go in, they nail it. It was the best song of the session. And we still had like four minutes left. It's just unbelievable, you know, and the, the caliber of, of everyone, really, the musicianship, it's just unbelievable. And uh, so it's another one of those very complete communities. As the music industry continues to shift in, in, um, in many respects, and, and some areas go down, and some areas there's a few bright spots, do you think Nashville, you said Last Bastion, is Nashville kind of, um, is this a bubble waiting to burst? I, well, the short answer is I don't know. Uh, but I tend to think not because it's so diversified mm-hmm. and because it is, I would say, um, you, you, people have this image of Nashville where everyone's wearing cowboy boots and, you know, whatever it is, or that it's some sort of hillbilly thing. But Nashville has always been at the forefront of the changes in the recording industry. It was really the first town to go digital before L.A. or New York, uh, you know, the, all the Mitsubishi and the, so many digital machines and so forth. I think that it's really forward thinking in that people are... You know, we still have the big studios, the Blackbirds and, and so on. But I think it's already adapted to the new model where there's a lot of people that are moving from, you know, everybody has their own home studio. They're moving from big studios to medium studios to home. They have business models where they're you know, allied to a publishing company or a record company where they're doing their own thing. Um, everybody, of course, likes to complain <laughs> about things. But everybody that I know in the music industry here seems to be busy all the time. I don't know if they're getting rich, but they... They're making a living. So the short answer is, I don't know, but I rather think that it's going, that you know, people who are doing it will continue to do it well. Well, cool, man. Uh, that's about it. We're about out of time. Thank you so much, Mark. Pleasure to talk to you. Okay, Mark, take care Thanks, and uh, tell, tell anybody that I know there, hello. I will do that and come visit. Oh, I will. Great. Okay, see ya. Well, there you have it, Mr. Mark Rubel. We're out of time today. We'll be back next week with another fantastic guest, as usual. Hey, I know at the end, I always ask for Facebook and Twitter uh, action. I'm asking for something new. If you have the time and you feel like you are getting something out of the show, and no, this is not going to be one of those you know, national public radio pledge drives, but it is going to be a request to go over to iTunes and put down a positive review. If you're liking the show Tell others about it because, you know, it really helps the show in the end when you do that. And when people log on to iTunes and they see, you know, several mini star reviews, it's a little bit like Yelp, except, you know, it's not Yelp, it's iTunes. So there you go. That's my, my, my ask of you today. Please go on over to iTunes and do that. Until then, uh, next week, I'll be back with another show and another guest on Working Class Audio. That's it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.